0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Tuesday, January 17th. Amanda Borchel down here with our political correspondent Tal Schneider and Knesset correspondent Carrie Keller-Lynn. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi, Amanda. Great to have you with me. We have really a packed program today, including follow-ups on the judicial overhaul, Tal's recent interview with Ugar activists during their tour of Israel, and 21 never-before-published images from the aftermath of the war. Warsaw ghetto revolt but first a short break
1: do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere the sarachuk law firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases they are based in new york with relationships around the world Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.saracheklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance.
0: And we're back. Yesterday, thousands of students in more than a dozen university and college campuses around the country held a one-hour coordinated strike against the new government's plan to overhaul the judiciary, saying they were fighting for their futures. Now, before we delve in too far, I'd like to ask you, Tal, whether you think all of the public protest against the wide sweeping reforms could actually cause Netanyahu to alter them? Well, this
2: is the biggest question. We don't know that. In Israel's history, you had huge demonstrations who took down governments. If we're talking about Golda Meir's uh, 1973 post-Yom Kippur war demonstrations. And you can look at the 80s with uh, begging in power. And you can also look at just, you know, two years ago when huge demonstration actually, you know, got Netanyahu to lose the government for the first time in, in 13 years for him. So right now it seems unlikely because this government is very new, but demonstration is something not for the short term. They had 100,000 people in huge rain and cold last Saturday. I've talked to people from the opposition yesterday in the Knesset, and they said to me, the potential is much, much bigger. Carrie, you have any thoughts on
3: this? I I think Tell said it well. One thing an activist said to me, and this kind of echoes with something Tal wrote about last week, is that in addition to pressure on the government, these protests can also be pressure or even coverage for municipal authorities who might want to defy some of the government's decrees, especially where it would touch um, areas more under their bailiwick, such as education. Um, So if you see such a, a large uprising from the public, especially in areas where you might be a municipal leader. Perhaps this is backing for you to, to come out against some of the policies that you might not agree with that the government is pushing.
0: And what we haven't seen in major forests is the those who support the measures. And one could think that's just because, okay, they're in power, they support it, so what? But also we heard statements from Justice Minister Yariv Levine that there is potentially increased support of these uh, judicial overhaul measures because of what Kerry?
3: Well, he said something interesting yesterday. He basically said the quiet part out loud. Levin has been a longtime ideological advocate of overhauling the judiciary, but only in the past few months, in the past year, has he actually gotten support from his party and from its party leader, Prime Minister Netanyahu, to actually push them. And what Levin said on the Knesset floor yesterday was the public has seen the three uh, charges brought against Netanyahu in his ongoing corruption trials. And has said, "No, we need a, a we need reform. It's been awakened to the need for reform. So, you know, the opposition has has long held that this Likud push for judicial reform is tied to Netanyahu's ongoing trials, his you know possible desire to want to get out of them. Remember, in January last year, we were discussing a potential plea deal, even to close these trials. Um, and so Levin said that, and, and basically a, a bunch of people jumped on and said, see, we knew.'"
0: Okay, so we've mentioned the opposition, and let's hear about statements from Blue and White head Benny Gantz about his overt willingness to collaborate on bills that are pushing for a judicial overhaul. Why should Netanyahu even need Gantz's cooperation?
3: Well, he does, and, and he might in the future. He does and he doesn't. So Netanyahu doesn't technically need Gantz's cooperation to push this judicial reform platform right now. Remember, Likud, as well as its far right and ultra orthodox allies, all want this reform platform, which would put um, parliamentary supremacy over judiciary, to go through. And they all want it for slightly different reasons. He might want Gantz's support if you believe a couple of different scenarios. One, creating a reform that would have less uh, public opposition to it, because you brought in the second largest party in the opposition, a big center right party, where there are actually a number of party members under Gantz, including former Justice Minister Gidon Sar and um, Matan Khanna, who in the past have also pushed for reforms, not unlike in flavor to the one that Likud is pushing, just not to the extreme to which Likud is pushing it. Uh, another potential scenario, if you want to go further out um, in, the, in the, you know, speculatory <laughs> spectrum, <laughs> that's, a, that's a phrase, is um, with with Gantz signed on to these reforms, there's a way for Netanyahu to actually form an alternative government uh, without certain extremist elements, you know, specifically maybe uh, taking Ben-Gvir out of power one day and, and replacing him with Gantz. Uh, a lot of people say that one of the ways this government might fall, looking towards the futures on clashes to the right, especially with Bengville. Um, I think it's no secret that Bengville has the most tension among him and the other party leaders. And so if Gantz is on board with judicial reform, which is the most uh, extreme of the proposals that the coalition is pushing right now, then it would be possible to maybe change the... Uh, change the makeup of the government.
0: Tal, jump in here. I'm sure you have thoughts about why Gantz is overly offering his support or cooperation, at least, for these reforms.
2: I think uh, for several of the issues, such as the override clause, uh, Gantz is willing to go for something that is 80 members of the Knesset, the two-third. So he's willing to go to an override clause that will you know, when you, you want to override uh, the Supreme Court decision, you need the opposition, the potential opposition in the future to do that. I think he's unwilling altogether to go for the nomination of the judges, get the judges of the Supreme Court to be decided by the government, or is unwilling to change the status of the legal counselors of the uh, ministries. So... Gantz is talking to the center of Israel. He's saying, like many people say, judicial system needs some changes. Uh, those changes need to be carefully done because the prime minister is in criminal trial. He's, he's talking to that crowd, the crowd of the center. Uh, let's talk. Let's do something. Let's avoid this, uh, what they now call fear of um, civil unrest among different groups in, in Israel. Let's uh, avoid it and do something. But I don't think he is is willing to go anywhere close to something that is being. I mean, Levine is suggesting such a wide range of changes. It's it, it's it's very far from you know from what Gantz is willing. <laughs> you know, the Gantz first step. It's very far from the sides are very far away. And and as as Kerry, um emphasized, Netanyahu doesn't need them. He can you know, swallow those demonstrations, swallow the public resentment and go ahead and do whatever he wants.
0: Now, the voice I'm not hearing so much is, of course, our former Prime Minister, Yair Lapid. Recently, we heard some very uh, hyped rhetoric from him, but in the past several weeks or the past several days, at least, I'm not hearing much from him at all. Has he come out with statements and I've just missed it in the wash of media?
3: No, oh, he, he absolutely has. He's just been saying very similar statements. Um, and I think Gantz is specifically been getting more press because Gantz is saying something different. He said, I'm willing to negotiate to what extent, as Tal, I think very aptly mentioned, to what extent he's really going to be flexible enough to create a negotiation. Unclear um, how much this is an offer that's, you know, I think has any credibility. Um, But Lapid has been very, very clear that he thinks that this is um, the, you know, a coup on democracy. But also more than that, he said that this is not what uh, Netanyahu promised the coup voters. Um, Netanyahu hit back and said, of course, we telegraphed that this is what we wanted with the elections. Again, there were some interviews by his party members that said that they wanted a number of reforms. There was no actual judicial reform platform produced. The first time that we saw what these reforms would look like was when Yuri of Levin two weeks ago announced them. Uh, after the government was already formed. Uh, But no, uh, Lapid's been very clear. He just didn't show up to the protest on Saturday night. Um, He claims that he didn't want to make it, quote, too political. Of course, Gantz was there. Other opposition leaders were there. So uh, yes, Lapid is, is still solidly on this issue. I just think that he's taken a little bit of a... Of a public back burner right now to Gantz, which might also be contributing to some of the tensions that are still going on in the Knesset opposition, where it's really unclear who's leading uh, the opposition opposition camp.
0: Okay, we'll go to a show break now.
1: The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your
0: podcasts. And we're back. Tal, you recently spoke with Rushan Abbas and her husband, well, forgive my pronunciation, Abdullah Hakim Idris, who are two Sunni Muslims from China's northwestern province. Now, why were they here in Israel? Right. Uh, it was interesting. They were here. They were brought here
2: by U.S. Department of State as an activist against the camps uh, in which uh, they're you know, family members are being held. Uh, we know them by name. It's called the Uyghurs. This is the Chinese Muslims living, as they, as you said, in the northern western part of the country. Rushanabas and her husband, Abdul Hakim Idris, she actually lost touch with her sister, Gulshana who... Was a, a doctor, a uh, physician in China. The, her nieces live uh, right next to her in the United States. And one of, and this is five years ago, so one of the nieces uh, was about to give birth. She couldn't get her mom over the phone. The family started looking for her. She went missing. And as per Idris, he is he lost. I mean, he doesn't know where, the whereabouts of 24 family members, brothers, sisters, parents, nieces, nieces, uh, cousins, and so on. According to phone calls they made, all those family members were picked up at night or a day by the authorities. The reason they were picked out is because Rushana Bass was speaking against the Chinese uh, authorities in a think tank in Washington, D.C., So it was in a revenge atrocity, according to what we know. They haven't heard from them. They are touring uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe with the United States Department of State trying to raise awareness to their suffering, to the disappearance of their relatives. So I spoke to them. Idris has a book, uh, Roshan Abbas participating in, in demonstrations. They're trying to talk to rabbis. They're trying to talk to, you know, Jewish partners in order to, you know, get people on their feet and do something to, to save those people because they don't know the real robots. I mean, obviously, according to Abbas, this is, she says, three million people have disappeared. I, we cannot, you know, I cannot confirm this, uh, number. I actually tried to talk to the Chinese embassy in Israel to get their response. There, no one, no one is answering. We don't know if this number is true, but we do know from satellites images that were presented about six months ago that huge camps were being built. And I think the images appeared on BuzzFeed first using, you know, just open intelligence um, images, things that you can look from satellite during on your computer and you see the process of building some sort of Areas uh, in in where the Uyghurs communities uh, live. So, just a story that you know the international community is basically uh, mostly ignoring. The Chinese are very powerful in international bodies, the UN and the Security Council, and so on. So, it's very very hard for them to raise awareness and um, action to, to their suffering.
0: Now, Tal, you said you tried to get a comment from the Chinese embassy here in Israel, but have you had any blowback, any negative response from anyone about publishing this story, both in Hebrew and in English?
2: No, unfortunately, Amanda, no. I have to tell you one more personal you know, viewpoint. As a reporter, uh, in, nine, in 2009, I visited the Guantanamo Bay, and I was taken to see the Uyghurs about 20 of them that were held in what they called uh, Iguana camp at the time on on the Cuban beach. Those people were minors, underage. They were picked up by accident. The United States did not intend to pick them up. They got the wrong intel on those kids. They took them and then they were held. I mean, it took them like two years to find out that those Chinese Muslims had nothing to do with any kind of terror uh, attack. But then they were not able to return them to China or do anything else with them because none, no one wanted to take them. By, by the time I visited this place, they were already adults. And Rushan Abbas was actually, she served as the official translator for the American military to help those minors, uh, then, then adults that were held. They were held about seven to eight years in the Iguana camp. She helped resettle them. She helped uh, tra- talk to them. Another aspect of this very, very sad story.
0: Wow, Tal, I'm just blown away by that. Thank you so much for sharing it. Now, I just want to end with a story that one of my freelancers in the United States wrote, Matt Lebavitch, who is our Holocaust correspondent. And he wrote about how in the Polin Museum in uh, Warsaw, the Pauline Museum of the History of the Polish Jews, ahead of an April exhibition, they've uh, recently released today uh, some 21 images that were never ever seen or published, at least, of the aftermath of the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt. Now, way back in 1943, a Polish firefighter captured Forty-eight images while he was fighting the fire that of the of the Jewish ghetto just being raised by the Nazi regime, of course, and he was fighting the fire to make sure it wouldn't spread to your area in Warsaw. And this firefighter, twenty-three-year-old. Zbigniew Leszek Zivaszewski, please forgive my pronunciation, snapped 48 images. He published some of them after the war and others and the negatives were just put into his family home's attic. And recently his son recovered these images and he turned them over to the Polish. Museum. And so 21 images that have never before been seen, and the negatives, which show the actual progression of how these images were taken during fighting the fire we're now recovered and are being studied by researchers. And as we all know, every piece of evidence is so important in telling the story of these 7,000 Jews who died in the month-long revolt and these 42,000 who were transported to concentration and death camps afterwards. So please check that out on the site. Tal, Kerry, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amanda.
3: Thanks, Amanda. Bye.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this this out-of-this-world music.
1: You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts.
0: And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature,
1: Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time. Shalom.